Okay, so thank you for joining us here at Acts Reform Fellowship. And the sermon for today takes us to continue the book of James. We are going through the book of James, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, hope to do an expository uh, teaching of this book so that we may grow, so that we may learn, so that we may, may be edified. And as I often mention, remember that as we go through the books of the Bible, uh, we just went through Colossians as part of our uh, earlier book that we went through, our first book we went through here. It's always a, uh, a good thing to have a map of what it is that the book is generally about and then be a little more specific on, uh, to the themes that the book talks about and be able to put a chapter you know, in your mind. So I encourage everyone to please do that as we go through, through the book of James in this case. Alright, so as a quick recap, before we actually look into the text for today, as a quick recap, um, the book of James thus far in chapter 1 uh, has talked about the author, which is James, and we concluded that this James is most likely the half-brother of Jesus, the older brother of Jesus. And who's he writing, the, who's he writing this letter to? It looks like he's writing to the Jewish Christians. This is probably the first Christian church out of Jerusalem. And the reason why he wrote that is because they were scattered uh, all over the, the regions there, and they were being persecuted for their faith. Uh, if you are familiar with the, the Jewish culture, especially in that, in, that, uh, in that time, you were raised to be culturally and religiously in the Jewish faith. And if you gave that up, uh, it was paramount to being disowned from your family. So it was something very serious. And not to mention that they were also being oppressed by the rulers, by those that are in authority, by those that are rich. So they were facing that, uh, that persecution as the early, early church there in, in, in the midst of, of all the other cultures and, and kings and rulers of that time. So thus far we know that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote it. And he was not a believer when Jesus was alive. He actually became a believer after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians uh, and a couple of other books in the Bible, New Testament, attest to the fact that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to many. And it mentions James specifically by name. And James became a believer, such a strong believer that he built himself to be uh, a leader. He's mentioned as one of the pillars of the early church there in Jerusalem. So what did he write to them about? So far we see that he has emphasized that enduring through trials brings spiritual maturity. Okay, how does that work? Well, if, if we look at our daily lives, any purpose that we want um, to take to make our lives better, whether it is uh, eating better, whether it is learning a new trade, whether it is, um, you know, getting a new job and how, how your path to that new job is going to look like, it requires sacrifice, it, it requires work, it requires you being put through the test, right? If I'm going to the gym because I want to look fit and, and gain muscle, I cannot say after two, three days a week, maybe even a month, to say, hey, you know what, I'm really not seeing the results I expected. It's like, well, duh, it takes a while, and you, you're going to have to rip your muscle and build it in order for you to ultimately see results, right? So when our test is, when our faith is tested, rather, then we can 
see over time as we look behind us that God indeed has been faithful to draw us closer to Him by the trials and the tribulations that come into our lives. I can think of various instances in my life where a heavy trial came and the way out of it was to ultimately be at peace with what God had allowed and make that a way for me to come closer to Him in order to have complete dependence. Now, that is easily said, but it's very difficult to do when you're in the midst of a trial. Okay, so spiritual maturity to come out of those trials. What else have we learned thus far? That once we are growing, once we are attaining that maturity, as believers, we need to acquire wisdom. In James 1 chapter 6, which Brother Kevin covered, it talks about the type of wisdom that what that comes from above. We're not talking here about spiritual snobbery or um, uncertainty in philosophical arguments. No, here we're talking about the definite, unshakable wisdom that comes from God, which in turn will actually give us maturity in Jesus. It'll give us a way to build a worldview in how we act, in how we interact, in how we respond to the trials of the day, into how we're going to act when we're confronted with temptation, into how we're going to decide when it's time for us to either take a different career path on whether we're going to be uh, pursuing a relationship with someone, whether we're going to choose a particular uh, car, home, whatever it is that is going to affect your life. The everyday choices that we need wisdom in order to be able to live according to how God wants us to live so that ultimately we may honor Him by the way that we live our everyday life. So we need to attain that wisdom and that wisdom comes from above. It comes from God. Now, James is acknowledging that the Christians he's writing to, the Jewish Christians he's writing to, are undergoing pretty heavy trials and they're being persecuted. And in that time, he is now acknowledging that there is a socioeconomic difference either in his audience or also for sure in those that are around them. And he addresses that very thing. And what he's encouraging the Christians to do is to ultimately look at themselves in the way that God sees them not in the way that they may think they're defined by how much they have or by how little they have. And that's where we come today to the scripture in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So please turn your Bibles there, James 1, 9 through 11, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Okay, James 1, starting in verse 9 through 11, it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
This is the word of the Lord. Alright, let me pray and then we'll proceed. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text that you've given us today. I ask that you would illuminate our minds, that you would open up our hearts to humble ourselves and hear from your word today, Lord, so that we may be edified by it. In Jesus' name I ask this, amen. Alright, so you can have a seat. So James uh, brings the topic of socioeconomic situation that the believers there are, are facing. Now, wealth, riches in the Bible is a key concept. The Bible talks a lot about wealth, riches, how we pursue it, and how we may go astray, right, in the pursuit of wealth. A lot of times we think, oh, here we go, talking about money. But interestingly enough, the person in the scriptures that talks the most about money and health is Jesus. Jesus is the one that talks the most about it. Why? Because wealth, money, riches is something that exposes where our true intents and where our true motives are really at. One may say, oh, you know, I really don't care about money. You know, it's, it's about this or it's about the other. But deep inside, we know actually money matters a lot. Right? Let's not fool ourselves. So it's a key concept that the Bible talks about of wealth and riches. So before we dig in a little bit deeper, I'd like us to look at what that might mean, rich and poor. What does that mean? Because James is saying for them to boast in something but not in their wealth. But what is considered being poor or being rich? So let us get an idea of what that might mean. As far as somebody being poor, we could pretty easily picture somebody in, in a third world country, right, where there's desperate need of very basic resources. We could say, oh, you know, a rich person, uh, I mean, a, a poor person, rather, or a poor country. Some, some may say maybe that's an, a way in which we could have an opportunity to help, right? Sure, that could be an instance of how we see somebody that is poor. We could also see that in somebody that perhaps doesn't have a home, that is homeless here in our own country, in our own town. Right? That homeless person may be struggling from day to day to even have the basic necessities of life, such as food, obviously shelter. So we could say, yeah, we could see that that person is poor. Or we might even take it further and say, wait a minute, well, I think I'm kind of poor. I mean, I'm struggling to pay my rent. I'm, I'm living, I'm scraping by month by month, week by week. So, you know, I, I think I'm poor, some of us may say. But let's ask ourselves this. What if somebody told you that you're rich? Like, are you rich? My immediate response would be, no, I'm not rich. And then I'll look into the person next to me and I say, he's rich or she's rich. Right? Because we, we don't want to think of us as somebody who is wealthy of somebody that is rich, it kind of has like a, a bad connotation of, of some sort, especially in our culture. So to give a little bit of context to this, and I'll, I'll let you know why this is so important for us to notice this. I'll give you a little bit of background of, of my own self, my family. When my family moved to California, it was two years after we had moved to the U.S. We lived a year in Texas and about a year in San Diego, and then we moved to the L.A. area. That was in about 1992. And I think that at that time, 
my family was pretty poor. My dad was struggling finding a steady job. He, he was a street vendor during the day and, and a street musician during the nights just to scrape by, you know, to have a little bit of money in order to uh, pay for rent and pay for food to provide for us. So I would say we, we were pretty poor. And I recall my father once saying that a supervisor at, at one of the jobs that he had in the early 90s told him that, you know, in order for somebody to live stress-free about finances, you would have to make about thirty, forty thousand a year. And you know, you, you'll, you'll be pretty much set with, with that amount of money back then. And we can see how as we start thinking of money, even in my own situation, as we can attain a little bit more, the target keeps moving of what we continue rich or having too much, right? I'll give you a further example into this story. So by the grace of God, I was able to um, go to school and, and graduate high school. And before I began college, there was a program that if you qualified for it, um, if you were a, a low-income, low-resources um, family and you wanted to go to college and you had good grades, then you would be invited into this prep course before you started your first year of college. And by the grace of God, I qualified. And the deal was that when we got out of that course, they were going to give us a stipend of $600. I thought, whoa, man, what am I going to do with $600? That is awesome. And you know, went through that course, and I remember that the time that I received that, it was a check. I was so stoked that out of my efforts, out of something I did, somebody gave me $600. That was awesome. Now, fast forward about five, six years, I started looking into graduating college and getting my first job. And for a lot of us, when we get our first real job, you know, quote-unquote, whatever we may consider that, and we start getting a steady paycheck, it's wonderful. But then maybe not too many days, too many months go by when you start realizing, hmm, this is kind of not cutting it. You know, I, I, I don't have enough. I, I need to make a little bit more money. That is very, very, very common. So, as we think about riches and wealth, because it's an integral part of how we live, right? We, we need money in order to survive, in order to buy food, in order to live. Let's put that in perspective. Recently, last year, CNBC did a poll of thousands of people to ask them, how much money would you need in order to consider yourself rich? They came to the consensus that after polling all those people, the average number they came up with, they said, hmm, if I have about $2.4 million in the bank, I think I would be rich. I would say I'm rich. Okay? Keep that in mind. A couple of years before that, a company called Fidelity Investments polled over a thousand millionaire households. Okay? They got a million or more. It asked them if they consider themselves to be rich. Right? What do we get from that result? They said, well, half of them said, well, I don't think I'm rich actually. And I wouldn't consider myself well off until I had seven million in the bank. Then I could say I'm pretty well off. 
But half of them said, nah, I'm not rich yet. According to the Economic Policy Institute, the Americans in the top 1% bracket of income annually make 390k or more. Okay? So let's keep these numbers just in mind for a second. We're almost done with this review of, of income and money. Now, the U.S. Census Bureau last year told us that the median house income in 2017 in the U.S. is 60000 Now, how does that compare? 60000 a year median household income in the U.S. to the worldwide annual median household income. That is $9,700. So in the U.S., you know, an, an average person, all things being equal, makes 60000 a year. While worldwide, the average income is 9700 that, That's a huge difference, right? So, if the rest of the world looks at us, who would they say that the rich people are? It's us, right? So all this to say that as we look at riches and money and wealth and how we pursue it, we can very quickly dismiss ourselves by saying, huh, that doesn't apply to me. I look to my neighbor and say, you're rich, so you worry about it. That is not intended for me to hear. But as we quickly saw here, we cannot excuse ourselves from thinking that when the Bible talks about riches and us pursuing riches, that it's talking about somebody else. Let's not be too quick to dismiss that. Okay? Now, the point that, Je that James is getting is that during the times of trial, this is the context of the, of the passage, the adversity of poverty or the prosperity of riches will especially bring out the filth of your heart. Why? Because if we are lacking, if we're living in adversity, we can become very discouraged. And we may turn into despair, or we may even turn into trying to attain a way of living that may not be honest. And we may even think that God has forgotten us, He doesn't care about us. And then we kind of don't look to God anymore. In the case of the rich, we may become overindulgent in the ways and the means that we have available to us in order to be able to indulge in our sin. Because it's easier, because, because we're powerful in that sense. So let's take a look at verse 9. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The word lowly here is the word that is used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it is defined as a person who is regarded as someone of very little significance in society. Okay, so maybe the poor beggar, the widow, the orphan, that they are left Aside, they're pushed aside by society and they have nothing. Not only they have nothing, but by and large, they are looked at as somebody of very little significance, very little value. 
That is the word that James uses here. What does James say about that person? To boast in their exaltation, how can that be? Somebody of, of that uh, low socioeconomic class, how can they boast in their exaltation? How are they exalted? Well, we can see that James is perhaps drawing here in this passage from Jeremiah 9.23 to 24. Let me read that real quick. You don't need to go there if you don't if you don't have to if you don't want to, but let me just read that real quick. Jeremiah 9:23 and on says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him boast, let let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who he practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we can start to see where James is really taking us to, of somebody that is rich, in this case somebody that is poor, can be exalted because of who they are in relation to Christ, in relation to the relationship with Jesus, not in relation to the little that they have. So the word boast here is not a malicious way of of being proud of somebody that may be proud because of the particular circumstance, right? But rather to be proud in the way that God has honored them, in the place that God has seated them. In 2 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Right? Paul alludes to his weakness in several passages in the New Testament. Why? Because out of that weakness that he shows, he says that it can be seen, it can be exposed that in his weakness, the strength that comes from Christ is able to be seen. And Paul is saying, I am nothing. I don't have nothing. I'm in jail. It may seem as though I have no hope and I, have complete, I should be in complete despair. But what does Paul say? Nope. I let my afflictions show that God makes me strong because of the position that He has put me with Him as a believer. So we can start to see in which sense we can be exalted even though we may be lowly or poor or as the word seems to mean somebody that society thinks as very of someone of very little significance. Also in 2 Corinthians 11.30, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, so again here, boasting, but not about oneself, not about what one is doing, but about what God has done. And then in Luke 14.11, Jesus speaking says, For everyone who exalts himself 
will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? So we get the picture that as we come and we are entering the family of God, it requires a certain kind of humility. That it doesn't matter if I don't have much, I still must submit myself and give myself over to Christ for what He has done for me. He has, all the riches belong to Him. And He exalts me as somebody who is worthy of being in His family because of what He has done. And that is how we can be boastful in what Jesus has done, not in what I could ever do, as we just saw in the Scriptures. And as a matter of fact, there's a promise in there, in the words of Jesus, that if you actually think you're all that, He says God is going to humble you. Right? And hopefully, it doesn't have to get to that point. But if He does, that it would be a way for us to wake up and say, you know what? I, I was being proud. And I, I should repent of that. So the poor is to boast in what God has done. And in some sense, for the poor, it's a little bit easier because one can say, you know, I'm poor, I don't have anything. I, really, I can't boast in nothing if I'm honest. So then, boast in the position that Christ has given you as, hey, I couldn't even attain salvation on my own, but God has given it to me, so I can boast in that for what Jesus has done. So how does God see the poor Christian? As later we will see in the book of James, James 2.5, we get the sense and the description of how God views those Christians that are poor. He says He views them as precious, as valuable, as chosen ones. Because God so wanted to be delighted in you. He chose you, even if you were poor. That didn't matter to Him. Now there's a bit of a warning also, because we may fall into the mistake of equating somebody who is poor and in need into somebody that is automatically righteous. And somebody that is rich and has been blessed by wealth, oh, they must be wicked. That's actually not the picture that scriptures give us. So we, we must look at that, at that warning. Because somebody who is poor can also become somebody who is very proud. And somebody who is poor can also be somebody who is very rebellious against God and will not turn to God. Which will lead to foolishness and to a crooked way of life. A lot of times even into laziness. Right? I don't have anything. Why should I make any effort to have, uh, to have something in this life? And Proverbs talks about that. One of those scriptures that came to mind is Proverbs 19.3. He says... When a man's folly brings his ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So if somebody's living a life that consequently brings them ruin and despair, they turn to God and they blame God. But we know that it was because of their own foolishness, because of their own mistakes. And we're encouraged at the same time to not be that person, but to be what? A poor person who is humble and looks and searches for God. The verse that came to mind there is Ecclesiastes 4.13. It says, 
Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So what does that mean? That somebody in high power that is rich and powerful at one point actually listened and was humble in that sense to get others' input. But at some point he attained a certain position that he became a fool because he wouldn't listen to counsel. He wouldn't listen to wise counsel. And it says it is better to be poor and young than to be that king and ruler who is rich but is a fool because he will not listen to godly counsel. So now, God, we can see that God will exalt the poor, but He will resist the proud. Right? We'll see that later in James as well. James 4, 6 talks about that. So what does Jesus have to do with this concept of being poor and being humble? Well, we know that Jesus became poor. He humbled himself in order to come into his, his own creation and be able to live the perfect life that we cannot live and be able to die the death that would have been upon us so that we can cash in on that righteousness of Jesus. He didn't have to do that. But he humbled himself he was seated on the throne. He was in heaven. And he humbles himself by becoming a man. So we can see here that when the scripture talks about these concepts, God himself is demonstrating the ultimate way in which that is done. And that would be in Jesus. Humbling himself as a servant, as a bondservant. Okay, so Jesus would be the ultimate example of that poor person. Verse 10 says, And the rich, that is the rich, to boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So the rich in this case is not to boast in his wealth. It is very easy to boast in wealth. Why? Because we live in a culture, and I, I assume that this has been true for ages, in which if you have a high status, if you have wealth, then people kind of automatically respect you for it. This brought to mind something that help to emphasize this point. If you have wealth, if you have money, people will respect you. I came across a video one time in which a guy was a guy who's an artist went to an art show to see if they would help him to bring his display the next time so that he could participate in the art uh, in the art gallery or the art show that they were having a very prestigious art show. I forget whether it was in L.A. or New York. And he made it like a mini documentary of it. And what he found is that when he went to this art show, trying to talk to agents and people and even the owner of the show, 
to try to explain to him the art piece that he wanted to, to expose or to bring uh, in the next time, nobody would pay attention to him. So he did something pretty clever. Somehow, I don't know why, I don't know how he did it, but he went and maybe he got a loan, maybe he has uh, somebody who's very wealthy that helped him, but he got a million dollars in cash, $100 bills, a million dollars, and he made bricks of money. He saran wrapped it and put it in the duffel bag, a see-through duffel bag, and carried it around uh, like in a little cart, like a little moving cart. So he went back to that, to that art show, and he took one of his buddies as a security guard. So he walks to this art show with a duffel bag with a million dollars in cash. And he said, hey everybody, this is my art piece. Immediately, people surrounded him. People wanted to take selfies with him. They were asking him, who are you? Wow, this is great. This is awesome. The owner, the person that was organizing the whole event, came out, asked him what he needed. You know, do you have a card? How can I get in touch with you so that we could bring you into the show next year? Why? Why was a sudden change in somebody that was trying to be a hustler with their art in a genuine way, and he kind of saw through their, uh, through how uh, not genuine they were, and he came back with a million dollars in cash claiming that that was his art piece, and all of a sudden, everybody's interested in being his friend. All of a sudden, he gained a significant measure of respect, not only by the people there, but by the organizers themselves. Why? Because when somebody is wealthy and shows that wealth, it creates an image of power, of respect, and by and large, a lot of people will respect you for that. So somebody with that type of <coughs> confidence, if you will, how can they be humble? How can they act humble? If you really think about it, it's probably difficult for somebody who is wealthy and has that amount of, of wealth and resources to humble themselves. So what is James saying here? To not boast in the material. Because why? Because the wealth is going to perish. The wealth is going to burn. I've yet to see a dead person being buried alongside a storage room. Not happening. So James is saying, don't be a fool chasing after those riches because they're going to perish. That's the warning that he gives us. Those riches can lead somebody easily into rebelliousness and in indulgent disobedience to God. There's an example of how not to be in our pursuit of riches in the young rich, the young rich ruler that came to Jesus. And he asked him, 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus gave him the commandments. He said, well, you know the commandments. Do them. Why? Because Jesus knew that this guy was up to something, right? And what did the young rich ruler say? I have actually followed the commandments. So I'm good. But I still like, I, I'm, I'm lacking something. I still need something. And Jesus said, okay, so you, you, know, you honor God above all and you honor your neighbor. You're doing pretty well. And mind you, by and large, superficially speaking, that might have been true of that young rich ruler. He might have had a very moral life. He might have, might have had a very good and high reputation in the people of, of that region. So to put it into our context, he could have been one of us. A moral man, a family, takes care of his household. But he's saying, I still need something. So what Jesus does, he puts it to the test. He says, okay, then go sell everything that you have and give it away. And before Jesus said that to him, It says that Jesus loved him before he told him that. So Jesus wasn't just slapping him around and throwing him down. No, Jesus had compassion on this rich man. Because he knew that he was spiritually bankrupt. And he put him to the ultimate test. God in flesh, Jesus himself is telling him, okay, go sell your things and give them away. And it said that the man, the young rich ruler, went away grieving. Because it said, because he had a lot of things, he was very wealthy. And that meant the world to him. So in essence, Jesus taught him, so you're here telling me that you can meet all the commandments. But money, your possessions, is your God. How can that be? Right? So that's, that's a lesson, a reminder for us that we don't need to be the young rich ruler to fall in that position of being a moral person, of being somebody who seems to have it all together. But deep inside, we actually do not put God first. And James is warning us. Now, an example or an encouragement of a righteous rich person. Because in Scripture, we see a lot of people were wealthy and they were righteous. So again, let's not, let's not confuse the message here to say that if you're poor, you're righteous, and if you're rich, you're wicked. No, the Scripture does not say that. Proverbs 14.24 says, the crown of the wise is their wealth. But the folly of fools brings folly. It brings them further destruction, right? So somebody that is a wise person that knows how to manage finances, that has toiled and being diligent in what God has provided to them. You know, Scripture says that to an extent, that is their reward. You know, 
you reap what you sow. They've been diligent, so they have will. That doesn't make them evil. Right? On the opposite, we could probably learn something from them. And it says that their wealth is their crown. And let's look here on how God humbles the rich, the rich believers. How is that? How is that so? How does that happen? Well, somebody that is rich must be willing to be humbled and be identified with the family of God. In essence, saying, all the wealth that I have really doesn't mean much. My true identity, who I really am, is that I'm a child of God. And if it came to it, if I lost everything, humanly speaking, yeah, it would suck, it would hurt. But if I had to get rid of all my stuff, I would be okay. That, to the world, is foolishness. If somebody's willing to give up large portions of their wealth, of their money, of their possessions. So the, the rich person needs to be humbled in that sense to be able to identify with the family of God. And the Bible says that the things of God, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, let's look at Jesus again. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says about Jesus, Although He existed in the form of God, He emptied Himself, taking the, the form of a bondservant being made into the likeness of men. So again, the greatest example of someone humbling themselves, being at a very high position, I mean, God is the ultimate high position. He's in control of all. Jesus has that position, and He had that position before He humbled Himself again to enter creation. So the Word of God here is telling us and instructing us not only by giving us prescription, if you say, but we actually have been shown in the ultimate way that this is carried through in the person of Christ. Humbling himself as somebody who was poor. Jesus was a poor man. Socioeconomically speaking, he was not rich. There's never an indication that during his ministry he had a house. He says he didn't even have a pillow to lay his head on. To, to lay his head on. And yet we see that he was rich, and voluntarily he became poor for our sake. Now, what if the rich person being spoken here is not a believer? In preparing for this message, uh, I came across the, I guess the, the two sides of this view that the rich person was probably uh, being depicted as somebody within the Christian community, which is most likely. But however, there's a possibility that James talking about a rich person here is talking about somebody who is not saved. Somebody who all they're doing is just pursuing riches. But if we think about it, we could actually apply that too so that it could serve as a warning 
for those rich people that are uh, not pursuing after God or maybe for those people that are pursuing after riches and really not caring for the things of God, right? That, that would also be a very clear warning. So looking at verse 11 says, For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James has given an illustration that is very familiar to his audience. A lot of them worked in the farms, in the fields, in the gardens. So they can see how the yearly cycle of seeing the, the very beautiful grass and the flowers, how it doesn't really last much because the sun will burn it up and then the next season comes along and it's gone. So it's given a very clear illustration. And here, James is again probably borrowing imagery and language from Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 8, which says that the grass withers and the flower will fall. But what does it say? That the Word of God will endure forever. So it's drawing us back to the constant Word of God, the constant and eternal truth of God, that we must redirect ourselves to when confronted or when tempted to follow after, after riches or after wealth. This is a reminder that the creation is fallen, that everything is passing away. And it would be full, it would be foolish of us to put our trust in that, in, the, in those possessions. So he says, just like the cyclical um, seasons come and go and they burn up the grass and the flowers. He says, just like that, the rich man in his pursuits will also perish. That is very heavy language. That's a very uh, sobering thought to ask ourselves, like, am I one that is just chasing after riches? Am I one that is consumed and preoccupied with nothing but how can I make more money for whatever reason? The word that is used here for the pursuit of those things again is a word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and it means somebody that goes on a journey constantly seeking for something. Or somebody that has a way of life. Everything they do is consumed and they exist in order for that purpose. In this case, to pursue that wealth. So James is warning the person that is obsessed with that lifestyle, going after the pursuit of riches, that they're going to die pursuing it and they're still not going to be satisfied Right now, that literal death, because right, we're human and we're going to die someday. He say you're going to die trying to pursue and and uh, having that goal of, of having more. Because as we saw at the beginning of, of the sermon, <clears throat> wealth, when we look at it in our human nature, is a moving target. It would be very odd for us to say, 
Yes, I'm rich. Right? I gave you the examples. Hardly anyone actually thinks that. They always think that the, the person in the next tier up, that they're the rich ones. What do they think? Oh, no, I'm not rich. The person next to me is the rich one. So that's why he says you're going to perish looking for that because you're never going to get there anyways. So let us look at a couple of scriptures that talk about that. Proverbs 23, 4, what does it say? Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and the rust destroy it, and where thieves break in and steal it. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and become ensnared by many foolish and harmful desires, which leads to their ruin and destruction. And then one last verse, which is something that we should consider very, very much, very carefully, when Jesus is giving the parable of the different, the different types of seeds. And He says, when these seeds are scattered in the ground and, and are put out there to see what kind of fruit they're going to give, only one of those seeds produces an actual fruit that is likened to genuine salvation. So here he's talking about one of those seeds that was actually interrupted or destroyed. How did that happen? He says, Mark 4.19, but the, after the seed was planted, he says, the, but the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and desire for other things come and choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. So ultimately, what happens if we consume ourselves with the pursuit of wealth? The scripture says that we're going to be deceived. And if that seed of God's word for us to be reconciled with God and follow Him and obey Him, the pursuit of wealth is going to choke that. <coughs> but yet, there's hope for the rich to humble themselves and enter the kingdom of God. Right? So what should we do then? Should we abstain from wanting to acquire money? I don't think that's what the scriptures are saying. Because as we briefly mentioned, why do we go to work? Well, having a job is honorable. Having a job is the means by which God has provided a way to take care of you so that you can provide for your family, for your kids, even so that you could be honoring God and sharing your money that you get from your job. We have seen before in Scriptures and Colossians how one is to work as unto God, as if we're working for God. Right? So... Practically speaking, we go to work because we have bills, because we need shelter, we need food. So, making money in and of itself is really not an issue here. But becoming consumed 
with the pursuit of wealth is what really can deviate us and take us into the wrong path. So what is James saying here? He is exhorting both the poor and the rich to look at their spiritual identity as the measure of their ultimate significance. And that becomes a common denominator. Right? The dangers of the rich and of the poor to be become caught up in their situation and taking their eyes off, off of God. And here we see that they're both to boast and to be proud of the fact that they belong to the family of God. And in that is how they become alike. That's how they become in, they become one, they become unified in the family of God because of what Christ has done with them. So to the poor, we are reminded that they are not insignificant. If you're poor, you are loved. You, you have been chosen by the Most High. And the poor person should be able to say, Hey Lord, I depend on you totally and completely. Because I, I have nothing. And I boast in what you have given me and done for me. For the rich is saying, don't boast in your material possessions. That's going to burn. Humble yourself. Identify yourself with the people of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Proclaim God to people. Use your wealth to edify others. And so that that could be a testimony of the goodness of God in your life. And if it comes down to it, for that rich person, which remember, to most of the world, we are rich. That it would come down to us saying, I'll give it all up, Lord. I will. And because you are my Father in heaven, I'm going to be okay. A lot of times, God will test us with what we most value to see if it's true that He is first in our lives. We saw the example with Abraham. Take your only son and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Father Abraham became the father of faith. The, the young rich ruler, in contrast, it says that Jesus loved him when he told him the truth. But nevertheless, he told him the truth. And it says that he went away grieved. But not grieved enough to repent. So how does God look at us? To both the poor and the rich? He looks at us and he loves us. And neither our lack of riches or, nor our abundant wealth will gain us any favor. If we're in the family of God already, then we are already assaulted with Him. If we are outside of the family of God, we are not believers in Christ, we are encouraged that if we're poor, 
God will take you and make you rich spiritually. And if you're outside of the kingdom and you're rich, that you should humble yourself and submit yourself to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word, for this text that you have given us. I pray that you help us, Lord, not to become consumed by the cares, by the pursuit of other things that is not you, Lord. I pray that you would have grace and mercy upon us, Lord, when we do fail and pursue other things, Lord. That you would help us to seek after you in order to have the faith that you will provide for us, Lord. Whether we're poor and have nothing, or whether we're rich and are asked to give it all. In Jesus' name, amen.